Hey, this is Christopher Domitio, and this is A Very Good Novel Coronavirus. You can find the whole thing at AVeryGoodNovel.com. This is Chapter 24, The Virus, Defeated, and Gaia's Blessing. Bob's journey started in mid-September. He crossed the border in Mesquite, California, which had previously been Mesquite, Arizona. Arizona itself had wavered with requesting annexation, as a huge number of residents had been Californians originally, but had moved to Arizona to escape higher taxes and have a lower cost of living. They were, for the most part, too old to move again, or too poor. Ultimately, the conservative-leaning government of Arizona had decided to remain where they were, while understanding that this was a precarious position between a rock and a hard place. Mesquite itself had been cut in half, with a part of the town on each side of the border. Zeta drove Bob to the border town in a postal jeep. Zeta and many others had offered to go with Bob, but he had refused. He thought it was better for him to start this journey on his own. In Mesquite, California, the border guards made sure that Bob understood that the borders of California were still sealed by the quarantine, and if he wanted to return, he would need to quarantine for 30 days. Bob signed the agreement. He walked into Mesquite and was met by a postbox delegation of about a dozen people. They helped him navigate through U.S. Customs, a situation that had become tricky if you had a California driver's license. The entire experience was a bit nerve-wracking because by necessity, social distancing was difficult at borders. The group that met him offered to drive him to wherever he wanted. Are there any evictions due to happen today, he asked. There were three physical evictions that were meant to take place that day. Arizona sheriffs were assembling now physically to remove one family. The papers were going to be delivered to a dozen others later on in the day. Let's go to the eviction, Bob said. That family needs our help. I don't want it to sound like Bob was alone in this. The postbox community had become overwhelmingly enthusiastic. They had made signs and banners. They'd assembled the PVC pipes, handcuffs, and ropes that they would need to do an effective sit-in and blockade. Also, there were armed postal workers standing by in case things became violent. The idea was to have a nonviolent protest, but if things did turn violent, to keep the upper hand and protect the protesters. There were about 30 people assembled at the house already. Bob didn't know it, but when he had met Gaia, she had infected him with a superbug. The superbug was a mutated variation of Gaia's coronavirus that boosted immune response, created proteins that nullified the virulent nature of the any coronavirus, and massively boosted the ability of the body to create vitamin D from sunlight. Bob was, in effect, a walking vaccination. Anyone who came into contact with him became immune from coronavirus. Bob was incredibly contagious. He was the virulent vector, but in a good way. The striking postal workers began picketing on the sidewalk with a couple of different signs. Better pay, more protection, postal workers love American families, and post office works for families, and no evictions, nor fo no foreclosures, USPS versus homelessness, and hell no, not on my route. The last one had been Zeta's idea. Actually, it had been his words when the evictions were announced. Bob had suggested they be used on a sign. Within an hour, there were over 100 people gathered. The other residents of the neighborhood soon joined them. Social distancing just wasn't going to happen, no matter how hard they tried. It went against human nature. Humans were a hugging, touching, stroking, kissing, and embracing species at heart. When humans actually touched one another, the violent urge left them. It was part of why things had gone so wrong. Modern human society before coronavirus was too distant, too cold, and too disconnected. People needed warmth from other people. In this case, there were two people in the crowd who were carrying the deadly virus but didn't know it. It jumped from them to others and from those others to others. In two weeks' time, a large number of this crowd would have been dead, except Bob was there. Bob smacked people on the back, accepted a hug from the homeowner, and had to shake hands multiple times with postbox members who came to meet him. It's easy to condemn people for not being cautious, but the truth is, social distancing goes against our every instinct.
Protests sprang up in front of other houses due to foreclosed or served eviction notices. The sheriffs were told that they would not be allowed to do their job. Looking at the crowd and seeing the openly armed postal workers watching from the sidelines, the sheriffs decided that discretion was the better part of valor. They didn't want to go into the crowd of people and risk their lives. They didn't know that Bob's super virus was spreading like wildfire through those crowds. It was an extremely sturdy virus and was transferred by touch, air, and possibly even by smiles. Bob was ferried between the protests, and in each place he closely interacted with everyone he came into contact with. The media came out, and social media influencers shot phone footage and shared it to their networks. There was a lot of condemnation for the unsafe distancing and the breaking of protocols, but such was the exuberance at the sites that those who were there decided it was worth it, whatever the cost. The truth is that humanity had mostly reached a place where life was no longer worth living if it had to continue on the way that it was. People wanted to either get their lives back or in their lives. There was also a hidden factor in that Bob's virus had a narcotic effect on people who contracted it. They became happy and carefree in regards to life or death. Their brains were flooded with dopamine. Over the course of the day, the protests turned into more of a street party, and those who came outside and joined caught Bob's virus. In many cases, they then took it to the people they cared about. Only those who were the most rigid, the most scared, and the most socially distant avoided Bob's disease. This ultimately resulted in two scenarios. One, they eventually caught the deadly coronavirus and died awful deaths. Or two, they remained isolated until someone brought them Bob's virus, which created a desire to touch and be close to others, but not in a creepy way. The movement spread quickly, as did Bob's virus. Postal workers and neighbors across America began to blockade evictions and foreclosures. Governors threatened to use the National Guard, but found that when they tried to activate them, they didn't show up. Trump declared that he would be bringing U.S. troops into the situation, but his commanders and officer corps accurately gauged that their troops would mutiny if forced to evict children and seniors during a pandemic. Bob's original plan of walking across America had to be thrown out the window. It was too big and it would take too long. And city was carried like a package by the United States Post Office from city to city and town to town. From Mesquite, he went to Phoenix, Tucson, Green Valley, and Prescott, up to Salt Lake Liddy, then to City, then to Denver, Colorado, and Lincoln, Nebraska, before heading directly to Chicago and then into Michigan. In Detroit and Flint, Bob was met by huge crowds. Bob's virus exploded into African-American communities and created a soaring joy that was like nothing that had been felt since the Emancipation Proclamation. It wasn't Bob that caused this. It was the empowerment of standing together and taking control of their communities. From Michigan, he traveled to New York. New York, the original American epicenter of the virus, was a shadow of itself. The streets were empty. Those who ventured out wore masks and proved and moved with caution born of great calamity. Bob and his entourage walked across the Manhattan Bridge. At this point, there were hundreds who had traveled with him as they walked. People came to their windows, ventured out of their doors, and slowly and with caution joined the procession. At first, they followed and kept to the edges, but as they became infected by both Bob's virus and the spirit of the movement, they fell in together. Over the six weeks since he had begun, the signs had grown and changed. The originals were still there, but now they were joined by people over profits, not my 1%, in billionaires, my home, not your dividend. There was a shared sense of solidarity and common purpose as they marched into Manhattan. As they came upon Wall Street, trucks filled with workers moved to the famous Bronze Bull and began to dismantle it. The windows of the New York Stock Exchange were painted over with pictures of flowers and children. The Mighty Girl statue was joined by statues of a mighty boy, a mighty mother, mighty father, and mighty grandparents. This was not a destructive riot. It was calm and deliberate work. The graffiti artists weren't tagging gang names. They were tagging messages of empowerment. 
During the course of Bob's trip across America, he had become famous. The media interviewed him about why he was doing it, what he was trying to accomplish. In the South and many deep red states, anti-Bob sentiment was running riot. Red state governors were threatening to arrest or kill him on the spot if he entered their states. In Chicago, he'd avoided doing any interviews, but it was already too late. He'd been spotted and identified. People knew who he was. Bob-centered conspiracy theories rose from everywhere. Who was Bob? Was he a revolutionary? Did he work for Newsom? What was his connection to the post office? While Bob was celebrating with the people of New York City, word came from the Attorney General of the United States that an indictment and arrest warrant had been issued for Bob Bobby Dauber, a murderous mafia boss from the south side of Chicago. The U.S. Justice Department gave a big upgrade to Bob's mafia resume and made him sound like some kind of Al Capone. Just about everything they claimed to be truth were lies. According to the indictment, Bobby Dauber had been the head of the Dauber crime cartel and was responsible for the gangland executions of hundreds of his family's enemies. The only victim listed on the indictment that Bob had actually killed was John Ficarota, but the U.S. Justice Department had never been shy about the truth getting in the way of an indictment. The Justice Department wasn't stupid, and they'd noticed that something was off with the U.S. Postal Service and that there was a big connection between the USPS and Bob. According to them, Bob's gang had infiltrated the Postal Union and taken control of the nation's mail to deliver drugs, weapons, and other contraband. Taking things even further, the indictment made connections between the Dauber family and such notables as Nancy Pelosi, Gavin Newsom, Bill Gates, and of course Jeff Bezos. One could see the hand of the president all over the new conspiracy theory. First, Bob had become a hero, and now he was public enemy number one. Very little of it was true, and Bob's followers would have defended him to the death, but when a troop of FBI agents walked up to Bob and informed him that he was under arrest, Bob held up his hand, told his followers and friends that it was okay. He'd intended to go all the way to Washington, D.C., but it wasn't going to happen now. This is what is meant to happen, he said. In truth, while much of what they had a accused him of were nothing but lies, it actually was a relief to be able to acknowledge who he really was, who he had been, and who he had become. The Trump administration used Bob's arrest as an excuse to immediately begin purging the post office, starting with the unfortunate postmaster general, DeJoy. Bob was transported to Rikers Island and placed in maximum security. In the process of being arrested and transported, the infected members of the FBI he had infected members of the FBI, and once in prison, he was patient zero in a prison-wide outbreak of the Bob virus. The Trump purges were largely successful at arresting and disempowering those who had actually supported Trump. As for those who were against him and or with Bob, they were no longer easy to find, easy to arrest, or willing to allow themselves to be taken as Bob had. California at first unequivocally denied the association with Bob. The leadership of the post office in the USA and the Postal Union both denied having ever heard of Bob. Reports came out of Chicago that the Dauber family had never been bosses in any sense of the word. The news had brought the movement. Bob had started to a screeching halt, but then something amazing happened. People started to lie. From Chicago, former President Barack Obama claimed that Bob had been a key intelligence resource under his administration and had made it possible to end mafia rule of Chicago. No one knows why he decided to do it. Maybe it was just to get under Trump's skin, or maybe he just saw an opportunity to undermine the Trump regime. In any event, New York Governor Mario Cuomo followed suit and said that Bob had been responsible for New York cleaning up gangland. At this point, it was becoming cool to support Bob. Plus, his disease was spreading like oil on water. Everywhere it went, people felt a renewed sense of hope and a sudden desire to help and interact with other people. 
President Newsom was the next to join the party, releasing what he said were classified documents that detailed how Bob had been working with the former state of California to root out white supremacists, Mexican drug cartels, and methamphetamine rings. The Trump-controlled media didn't share any of this new information, but it rolled out to people through text messages, social networks, and underground networks. Bob's jailers began treating him with a lot more courtesy and respect than prisoners at Rikers Island usually get, so much so that it was noticed that by their superiors who were monitoring the situation from Washington, D.C. by video link. As Bob's virus spread through the general population, Rikers Island became a very different place, and both guards and hardened criminals helping each other whenever they could. The cities Bob had visited were reopening without anyone's permission. The social distancing guidelines were being ignored. Life was returning to what it had been before, and evictions and foreclosures were either ignored or legislated out of existence. The southern states remained in lockdown, borders were tightly controlled, and the Trump purges continued in the military, the post office, universities, and police departments. Non-white neighborhoods and cities were cordoned off. As October ended, there was a clear divide between the North and the South United States. The South, the Midwest, and much of the Rocky Mountain states were still fiercely loyal to Trump and the god-awful things he stood for. On a dark, moonless Halloween night, a black helicopter landed on Rikers Island. Bob was shackled, hooded, and led out of the prison, and then loaded onto the chopper. One would have thought he was Osama bin Laden, given the security precautions that had been taken. Not just some deadhead who had been forced into a life of crime as a young man, but who had escaped to eventually embrace a life of love. I do want to be clear about something here. Bob wasn't a hero. In fact, Bob had done some seriously awful things right up to the time that he met Gaia. Sure, maybe he'd done them to people that deserved it. But the fact that he had done those things at all showed what kind of a human being he was. It was only when he met Gaia and Bob truly embraced a life of love that he became the Bob we know now. She flipped the switch in him. She taught him the universal lesson that all humans can learn, but that most never understood or bothered thinking about. It was this. A human soul consciousness can never find satisfaction until it is working for the satisfaction of all human souls and the consciousness totality. That was it. That was the meaning of life. It was completely opposite of what experience in the world taught a person to go after. Experiencing the world taught people that the only way to succeed was to look out for yourself and your own. Only if you took everything that you wanted or thought you deserved could you find true happiness and satisfaction in the world. That was the big lie told to everyone. The truth was hidden, but for those who found it, it became obvious. The only way to move forward was to become a part of the whole. As long as you were an isolated unit, you were trapped in an unsatisfying existence, no matter how much you took, controlled, or owned. It was why Trump, Bezos, and all those other billionaires kept taking more and more, because they were still focused on themselves. Hopefully you, yes you, hopefully you understand that. I'll read it again. A human soul can never find satisfaction until it is working for the satisfaction of all human souls and the consciousness reality. Hopefully you understand that. The helicopter flew off into the darkness, taking Bob to his fate. He was on his way to Washington, D.C.